This is a Radio.com original. People ask, they said, so listen, tell me what it costs per run to run one of these cars. And I said, well, that's easy. It's $3 million for the first run and the rest of the season's free. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Yes, Talking About Cars podcast where everybody has a car story. I'm Randy Cardoon, and over there, of course, you know him as Hot Rod Bob Beck, and you probably know the guy, there he is, he just came off a big win in Indianapolis in the NHRA, why it's Jack Beckman joining us. Jack, thank you so much, and you know, I, I can see you just have a few of your trophies in your bathroom. That's pretty awesome. It's a bathroom, you said, huh? <laughs> Well, you have so many of them. I'm sure you have them in a living room. This could just be a cubbyhole. I have exactly the same amount of trophies as every other racer. One less than you ever want. (laughs) Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? Well, congratulations on the big win. Now, I'm just looking this up here, and uh, let's start off with that. With the uh, big win, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you are uh, number number one. Number one. Okay. Well, obviously... First I'm looking at the wrong late, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> after the win yesterday, he goes into number one. Correct. Wow, congratulations. So you, you were correct as of first round Sunday morning. Ah, that's it. I had information that had yet to be updated. Talk, yeah. about, talk about a little bit of the drama as far, of course, participating in Indianapolis and the atmosphere with the pandemic. I mean, it's, it's been really crazy for all sports. And I'd imagine the NHRA is no different. It's no different. I don't need to tell everybody how sideways the world's gone. 2020 will be that forgotten throwaway year. And I hope by 2022, we all forget just how bad 2020 was. But so we've never been to Indy four times in a year for a race. We've raced twice at Indy before when they used to have a shootout. You could run for the shootout on Sunday and come back to the U.S. Nationals Trophy on Monday, but we didn't even run Monday this year. We ran that deal on Sunday. Well, okay, so if the U.S. Nationals is Indy 4, I made the finals of Indy 2 with Matt Hagen, which didn't get run at Indy 3, so we ran it Saturday at the U.S. Nationals, and we got beat. And we've been struggling with our tune-up. We had to implement two new clutch discs into our six disc pack and it always just takes time and usually you figure them out on Saturday after you qualify good on Friday except this year there's no more Friday qualifying so you usually go test somewhere except this year there's just really not that ability to go test so we've been figuring out on the fly and we just flat got outrun Saturday for that Indy 2 final that was run at Indy 4. Well, the only redemption there is we knew we can come back Sunday and still have a shot at the Big Show trophy. And it, it, we finally started to get our car to where it's back in that slot where it was before, where it's consistent and it's predictable and it's quick. And, and you can see it every run, not just in the number that flashed on the scoreboard. When we look at that time slip, we look at all those incrementals. And our car had really slowed down in that first number, which was from the starting line to 60 foot. And gradually, my crew chiefs, Guido and John Medlin, are chipping away at that. And I think by the time we get to uh, Gainesville for our next race, I think our car is going to be back up near the top of the sheets, not only in the overall ET for the thousand foot, but that first 60 foot, which is so important because you could never make that up. Well, making that 60 foot is a tough one, but 
you don't want to go up in smoke either. And that sometimes is a problem. Yes, but think about this. It, you have a greater chance of smoking the tires. Remember, our cars don't see peak G-forces for the first 50 feet. The racetrack just wouldn't take that much clutch, that much torque. So we will slide the clutch sometimes all the way to the finish line if the track's really hot. And if the track is unbelievable traction, we're still sliding the clutch for 500 feet. My point to you is the maximum G-forces are typically between 150 and 350 feet. So whatever you've lost in 60 foot, the only possible way you can make that up is to try to accelerate harder out towards the middle of the track, which increases your chances of smoking the tires. It's a fine line, Bob. I mean, too much, too soon, you smoke the tires right at the step. So you've got to be on that razor's edge. But trust me when I tell you, whatever you gain in ET in that first 60 foot translates all the way to the finish line. Whatever you give up, you've got to pull harder on that clutch to try to compensate. And what kind of G-forces are we talking about? A bunch. <laughs> on, a, on a national record run, when I step on the throttle for the first 60 feet, it's like 4.2 Gs. And just about the time you've screamed, oh, sh mm -hmm. they come down to about three and a half Gs. And that's a matter of us actually, not only are we not applying all the clutch, we pull a whole bunch of horsepower out of the engine at that point. That tire is wound up and balled up and, and it can't take anymore. And we let it relax by pulling about 20 degrees of ignition timing out. And in the car, that sensation is the G-force comes down to three and a half. And that little angel on your shoulder says, you got this, dude. And then we start stacking the timing and the clutch back in it. The G-forces in a funny car will come up to about 5.3. In a dragster, they're even higher than that. And that is the coolest part of the run, maybe except for hit and ball shoots at the finish line. And it's a negative 5.1 G. So I go from zero wrinkles to completely wrinkled again at the end of the run. <laughs> Jack, we've known each other for a long time, but where did you start your drag racing? Uh, Lubbock, Texas. I was stationed at Clovis, New Mexico in the Air Force. I enlisted when I was 17, and in 1986, I drove my car 100 miles to Lubbock Raceway. My first run was a 1506 at 93 miles an hour. I still have the time slip. And when I got out of the Air Force in February 88, I started racing pretty regularly at Los Angeles County Raceway, and that's where, where we met. Right. And everything was all about the time slip back then, Bob. It was like you'd, you'd change the intake manifold, different carburetor, jetting, timing, all this stuff to make that time slip read better. And one time I'm loading my car up and getting ready to pull out, and I see a guy walking back to his pits with a trophy. I'm like, I want one of those. So I stopped screwing with the car as much was a little more consistent on launching and shift points, getting the car uh, sorted out for a good dial-in. And I started winning trophies. And one time I'm in line for the trophies and the guy behind me, I think it was John Nichols said, hey, I've earned 5,000 bucks this year. I'm like, what? You make money doing this? So I started slowing <laughs> the car down to make money. And it's come completely full circle. It's all about the time slip and the trophy now. <laughs> what, were you, what were you driving at Lubbock? Great question. It, it, my first car is a 1968 SS396 El Camino. My dad bought it from the original owner when I was 13. I bought it from my dad when I was 15. I took my driving test on my 16th birthday in that car, and it is sitting in my garage right now. It took me three and a half years to do a resto mod on it. The car was in Hot Rod Magazine in August, 
And you want to talk about these serendipitous full circle moments. My car was in the August 2020 Hot Rod Magazine. 70 years earlier, August 1950, my grandfather bought my dad his first Hot Rod Magazine. I still have that magazine and my car's in the same one now. Wow. Now you're considered kind of a historian when you talk to other racers. They say if, if you want to know the history of something, ask Jack. I have always appreciated history and drag racing and the history of drag racing is just awesome. I've always been pretty good at it. I'm not a Bob Fry. I'm not a Brett Kepner, a Lewis Bloom, a Phil Burgess. I could rattle off seven or eight other guys that are just, that's what they do. I, I, I mean, like their job is to look stuff up and research it. So I got sucked down that rabbit hole. A friend of mine, Rod McCarroll, gave me his whole drag news collection back in February. Now this is before COVID hit. I thought, okay, I, I, I've got some nice stuff I can store in my garage and have available for research. And then I started opening them up and reading them. And I've, so far, I've done a 10-video series. It's on NHRA.com, Dodge Garage, and my Facebook. And I've walked through from the beginning, from, let's call Santa Ana, July of 1950. And my last video was 1959. Now, I've researched and written the script for 1960. And if I could find where I lost my motivation, I will go back out to the garage and I'll record 1960. But let me tell you, the phone calls with Don Perdome, Roland Leon, Don Garlitz, Ohio George Montgomery, um, all these absolute legends of the sport, and then I could name a half a dozen more in Southern California. It's just been so fulfilling for me, that seven-year-old kid that was on the fence at Orange County International Raceway in 1973, now come 47 years into the future, and I'm getting paid to do this. But these people that were the icons when I was a little kid, they know my name and they'll talk to me. And it's been rewarding, wouldn't even begin to scratch the surface. So I said the beginning of drag racing, let's call it July 2nd, 1950 at Santa Ana. Well, Captain will tell you drag racing organized goes back to 1903 at Ormond Beach. But let's call it quarter mile. Uh, Santa Ana was the first commercial organized drag strip. But in April of 49, Golita up by Santa Barbara ran, we could argue the first organized drag races, classes, entry fee, trophies at the end of the day. And the guy that won the first top eliminator trophy, Ed Osepian, I went and hung out at his house for an hour two weeks ago. 90 years old, the guy goes back arguably to day one of drag racing. So tell me I'm not the luckiest guy on the planet to get to do this. You are. Wow. There's no question about that. But you've also done so much in drag racing, including teaching people how to drive. And I'm one. Uh, you, you gave me, you, well, you didn't give me, I, you, I was part of the class that you were teaching with my son. And uh, that was an experience. So when I got out of the Air Force, I, I thought, since my parents aren't rich and my dad wasn't famous, I'm going to go have to make some money to have my own race car. So I was an elevator repairman for 10 and a half years. And then Frank Hawley said, hey, what if I gave you a lot less money to come teach drag racing full time? I'm like, that sounds awesome. Sign me up for that. And, and Frank and I continue to be awesome friends. I inducted him into the Hall of Fame several years ago. Another pinch me moment. I never quit working for him. We just stopped running the school at Pomona. We still do a lot of things together uh, on a more intermittent basis. And um, now I get a paycheck to drive a 335 mile an hour car that, that that I've got 32 funny car trophies, like not in my wildest dreams, you guys. Somebody said, you knew you were gonna do this for a living, right? I said, 
no. I, maybe somebody let me drive their car and I'd win one trophy, not 32 in a world championship. So uh, Jack Beckman's stock went up quite a bit 14 years ago when Don Schumacher hired me. Now, ironically, this might be my last year driving. The Chandler family, this is the last of their six years of, of taking care of our team and the MD Anderson team. And uh, to say that I'm grateful to Doug Chandler for continuing after Terry passed away would be the understatement of the decade. I mean, the man literally kept me and 20 other people employed through his generosity. And finding $3 million to go run one of these cars full-time for a championship in the best of times might be difficult. But with the COVID deal, not even knowing what our schedule is going to look like for next year, it's going to be next to impossible. So I'm facing the very real possibility of literally going back and fixing elevators next year. So I don't know what the future holds, but I got to tell you what a ride it's been. Talk a little bit about the economics. I'd be interested in knowing a little bit about the economics in this situation during a regular year when you don't have all these crazy things going on. And of course, with the pandemic, that just gives you all sorts of interesting challenges, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And people ask, they said, so listen, tell me what it costs a year to, or, or what it costs per run to run one of these cars. And I said, well, that's easy. It's $3 million for the first run and the rest of the season's free. <laughs> <laughs> and they wanted to know, I just want to know in spark plugs and bearings and crankshaft life and tires. And I said, I, that's a great question. I, I'm not sure the answer. Tim Wilkerson might have a different number than Don Schumacher would have, but you know, it's probably somewhere in the three to $6,000 range if you don't really hurt anything. But you can't do any of that if you don't drive the diesels to the racetrack, have hotels for the crew guys, pay their salaries, pay their insurance. And drag racing is still a bargain. I mean, the fact you could feel a championship caliber car for roughly one eighth of what it would cost to do the same thing on the NASCAR tour and one thirtieth of what F1 would cost is great. But can one of you guys write me a check for three million so we can continue to fund the car next year? I don't think so. Uh, it's not. Bob, uh, uh, let's try. I could write it. Table. I could write it, but you could probably use it to recap one of your slicks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. True that. True that. So you're in a situation where it's got to be strange. You're winning. You're ranked number one, and it just seems. Uh, it, not feasible at all that you could very well not have a ride next year. That just sounds strange. Yeah. And a lot of the fans don't understand it and it's a good, but naive outlook at what's going on. Uh, Kenny Bernstein might be one of the most brilliant businessmen that ever was in drag racing. And even he would tell you your on track performance does not correlate with the funding that you're able to procure, right? It's, it's a marketing arm and you hope that that translates into the best pieces hiring the best people and having the best results out there. And there's some teams that have a performance clause. Uh, uh, for instance, my teammate, the, the, the Napa car might have something where if they go out and set a record or they win the world championship, that, that maybe it pays X amount more, but really we're providing good positive marketing and the television exposure and the app track exposure. And the winning is just the icing on the cake. However, if you are winning, there's a great argument to be said for you've got some momentum on your side. But we're now looking at a race season that's gone from our normal 24 race schedule down to right now we're going to have 11, knock on wood, if everything goes well for the rest of the year. Now, you're going to have the finals in Vegas this year. Normally, that would be the race before SEMA, but there's no SEMA 
Uh, how does it, you know, it, there's no spectators, so it really doesn't matter to an extent where you race. But how well, does it? I, I hope there's going to be spectators. You know, Indy allowed 5,000 at this race, which is the most we've had since Phoenix, since, since the COVID uh, pandemic. So Gainesville's coming up. There was a lot of pre-sales for Gainesville. In fact, the fans showed up to that race. I was standing there Thursday, uh, went out there for the Drag Race Hall of Fame deal. I got to induct Bones Balo into the Hall of Fame. So I certainly didn't waste a trip out there, but Friday when they called the race, they ran sportsmen, but all the pro drivers headed home. So a lot of those fans have already paid for those tickets. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the cap's going to be on that. Then you've got St. Louis that's been running events there. How many are they going to be allowed? You've got Dallas and Houston, and then you've got Vegas. So who's going to put the odds on which tracks can run close to max capacity and which ones are going to be limited to 2,500 people? Because you can't, we can run a lot of races at Indy. NHRA owns that track. They don't have to split the gate with anybody else. And they haven't spent a lot of money on marketing it. But when you go to a place like Dallas, where NHRA and the racetrack each share in the promotion and the rewards from the ticket sales there, I don't know that you could do a race like that with 5,000 people. Mm-hmm. Now, coming up in Vegas, that's now a four-wide track. Are you going to be running four-wide this time? No. Well, uh, originally on the schedule 2.0, Vegas gave up the four wide, Charlotte, the other four wide facility gave up the two wide. Now we're not getting, there's a no wide at both of those tracks, right? There was four races slated between those two tracks, all that's off the board. So it will be two wide and that makes sense. Especially if it's gonna be your last race of the year. The question I've got is, is NHRA gonna make that a points and a half race for that added thrill? And being as that I'm leading the points right now, I say, no, 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 no. Actually, I'm not a, I've never been a supporter of doing things point points and a half. Don't manipulate the championship. Each round should be worth the same. So it will be too wide. So it is a standard championship format race. And no chase format this year. No countdown. Chase countdown. those guys that go around counterclockwise. Yeah. Yeah. We are, the you couldn't do a countdown with 11 races. Typically we would run 18 regular season races, reset the points and then run the six race countdown. It, it wouldn't be feasible with an 11 race season. Now, that countdown worked against you one year, didn't it? I've won one because of the countdown. I've lost one because of the countdown. And I won the championship before I lost the championship. And even then, I wasn't a supporter of the countdown. I completely understand why we do it. It's to add some artificial excitement. It's to stretch the championship, hopefully down to, well, you'd love to see it go down to the final round of the final race of the season, but you can't always script life. I think drag racing is more like golf. Whoever does the best over the course of the entire season, in golf's case, it's an event, should be the winner. Drag racing is not a a sport like football where you can go out and fumble five times and fall behind, but you still get to come back in the second quarter, in the third quarter, in the fourth quarter. If we stumble on the first round, not only do we lose points for that, they don't let us come back for the next three rounds of potential more points. We're not NASCAR. NHRA should be accrued points throughout the season. So I am on board with a non-countdown format this year. Is that the strangest thing that you guys have had to get used to during this pandemic season? Or is there something out there that just, not just you, but everybody seemed to be oh. kind of off? Yeah, Randy, so, about. so every time I say, boy, it can't get any weirder than this. <laughs> right? so, so running in front of empty grandstands, because I think the first three Vegas races, they were limited to 2,500 spectators. 
that's not unprecedented for us. I've won a lot of races that were rain delayed and we come back Monday and people had to go to work and there's not that many people in the grandstands. The oddest thing through all of this has been our inability to interact with the fans. They're still allowed in the pits. They still can come watch us work on the cars, but all of the crew, all of us have to wear masks at all times. We're supposed to stay six feet away from the fans. It's difficult when you're packing the chutes. Once in a while, you can try to get an elbow over towards them. But it's one of the things that made me fall in love with drag racing, both as a spectator and as a participant. That ability to interact with the fans. And I'm a big hugger. I don't get to hug anybody right now. So I hope sooner rather than later, we're going to be able to lift the band and let us get out there and sign autographs and pat the fans on the back and, you know, just let them be an immersed part of our entire experience. People know you as a top fuel funny car champion, but you were a champion in other, other classes of NHRA racing. Yeah, I won the 2003 Super Comp Championship, and I still got the car. I'll make you guys a hell of a deal if you want to use Super Comp. <laughs> I, I might need some spending cash. But you got to take it off the wall at the NHRA Museum. No, it's, it, 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 you want to talk about flattering. My car is on display at the NHRA Motorsports Museum. That That's pretty cool. Like, Bob, there's so many things. You know I'm just a normal – well, actually, I'm not a normal guy. I'm about as screwed up an individual as I've ever met. And the <laughs> fact that I get a paycheck for doing this and have had so much success in drag racing. And I think, you know, I, I, I'm I'm a big talker, but I'm not an arrogant jerk. I, and And – so I pinch myself all the time that I've been allowed to do this, that I get a paycheck for doing it, that I'm in a car surrounded by great people that can go out and win races. And I got another car in the NHRA museum. It's, it's pretty awesome. And listen, I knew this ride was going to come to a halt at some point. Now that's not to say we may be able to procure funding and we're right back out there next year in a perfect world. I'd love to keep Infinite Hero on the side of our car because we are changing injured veterans' lives every single time that car's at the track. We raise money every time it goes down the track. I take challenge coins with me. It's a $100 donation. We sold out at, uh, at the U.S. Nationals. It doesn't hurt when you win the race, too. I think we still got a couple semifinal coins left, but it, it, all that money gets pushed over to our grant committee. All that money goes into a funding cycle that helps these veterans with whatever their new normal is going to be. So, this ride of mine, in addition to winning all the trophies and hanging out with some really bitching people, I've got to help be a small part of changing some folks' lives. So, so maybe that happens again next year. Maybe I sit out a year and keep working on the funding and it comes back. I am not throwing the towel in. And man, if you're going to have a farewell tour, 2020 would be the worst damn choice you could make. <laughs> True that. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so we are looking at the trophies behind you, and they're so cool, it's unbelievable. But is there a trophy that just means a little bit more to you, or you, the experience in winning it means a little bit more to you that, than maybe some of the others? That is an awesome question. Like, I'm pretty sure, because my memory sucks, but I'm pretty sure I could take each trophy down and after a couple of minutes go, oh, yeah, yeah, let me tell you about this one. Well, So we won Charlotte. God. I want to say 2015, I hadn't won a race in 55 events. It had been almost two and a half years. That was a pretty big deal. Um, my first one, pretty big deal. Winning Nitro at Pomona for the first time, the finals last year, 
big deal. Then we come back to the Winter Nationals this year, which I'd won twice before in Super Comp, never in Nitro. So like, I'm, like, like out of 34 of these, 32 of them are probably a pretty big deal. Uh, 2015 Indy, to win the tracks a shootout on Sunday and come back Monday and win the race. And we qualified number one, set low ET, top speed of the meet. For a drag racer, there is not a more perfect weekend than that. So that one might be the coolest trophy I have. So I'm just looking behind you, uh, let's say, so over your left shoulder, the one that uh, like, yeah, just back and then to the right, that one. What, what is that? Okay, so this is a Skull Showdown. This is the top eight funny cars throughout the year raced as a race within a race at Indy. And then on the top there, there should be two tracks of shootout trophies up there. And there's a third one at Roger and Karen Comstock's uh, car facility. Not because I was running out of room. You could always find room for it because they are <laughs> probably the reason that I have had any success in nitro racing. Great friends of mine, and they funded me for the first year. I drove Top Fuel in 2005, and then they stayed on through their, their mail terminal services program when I went into Don Schumacher Racing. And, and even though their participation has gone from this big on the car to this big on the car, they've been there for my whole career. Speaking of their career, there's rumors about how you got the name Fast Jack. Can you dispel them? Because there's one guy running around in Burbank who keeps saying he gave you the name. Oh, you must be talking about Fast Eddie. Yes. That's right. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, and he's accusing me of being a plagiarist. That name actually came from my friend's mom. And it's a long story, but uh, we were in the Air Force. My buddy had an AMX. I had a, a, a my 396L Camino. So, uh, you know, we, we naturally gravitated towards each other. We were both car guys. And I want to... He got out three years before me. I went back to Florida on vacation and I had just bought a 1985 Yamaha FJ600. And we were, of course, all the younger kids, we were talking crap. And his mom said, I, I guess you're going to have to call yourself Fast Jack after all this. And that one kind of stuck. And let me tell you, Bob, there could have been a lot of worse names that could have got stuck on me. So I'm not <laughs> Does that person even know that they had that much of a role in your uh, naming rights, so to speak? Yeah, Mumbo passed away years ago, but my buddy Mike and I still talk quite frequently, and he will be at Gainesville, yes. So he takes <laughs> full credit for all my success. Very good. Very good. We've had a chance to talk to you about uh, running for a championship, and uh, how many now? How many more races do you have as of this conversation? Races. So five That's left. It. We will go Gainesville. Dallas, Houston, I'm sorry, Gainesville, St. Louis, Dallas, Houston, Vegas. And here's where it gets odd and, and you get what you get. We'll have a week off. Then we go Gainesville, St. Louis, back to back. Then we have a week off. Then we go Dallas, Houston, Vegas, back to back to back, and we're done. That's it. That's all you get. Unless by some miracle we decide to have four more races at Indy, that will be our season. <laughs> All right, so what's going to happen during the off-season? Let's just say everything goes well. You've got another sponsor coming back on board. 2021 season comes up. Uh, what, okay. What's, so what, so you're saying if, if the Cardoon back $3 million. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. So yeah. if I've got a driving job next year, I'll get, I think I'll dive a little more deeper into the history. I, 
my goal was to try to get my video series up to 1964, which is where we came out of the fuel ban era. I think that was a milestone in drag racing. And I just, I wasn't able to get there. It was too much reading, too much material. And I've went and emptied three people's collections of magazines out. And every time I do that, I stack them in the garage. Then you've got to go through and organize those. Then you've got to see which ones you have duplicates. Then you bag them, then you box them, then you organize them. And I got so much crap in the garage, I couldn't even get in there to film. So I stopped and that was four weeks ago. And I still am trying to box and organize so I can go back and finish film in 1960. And as much as I'm complaining about this, I've pretty much enjoyed every minute of it. Well, you know, if you have all the boxes and the magazines stacked around you, it'll look just like it is Kendarian's office. So that would be cool. <laughs> you may have the ones I'm missing. That's a great idea. There you go. For those See? that don't know, Ed Iskandarian throws nothing away. No. No, the word hoarder came very well, probably for him. But I like the you say it. Uh, you say it much better. Hoarding oh. sounds like such a negative. Word. Are you kidding? Even the hoarders go, "Damn it! You got a lot of stuff." In your <laughs> what, hey, is, Ed's ninety-nine now, yep. right, Bob? Yeah, yeah. I believe so. Yeah, ninety-nine and drives himself around. Now, whenever we go to a function together, I give him a twenty-minute head start because I do not want to be next to him. <laughs> The man's 99, and you want to talk about, the great thing about drag racing, and again, you can trace it back to 1903, but let, let's call it 1949, 1950. There's a few of the day one guys that are still with us, and there, there's no other major sport that can say that. Baseball, football, they go back so far that there's not even second generation people still mm -hmm. alive. We've got a couple of those still with us, and I am cherishing the time that I get to spend and interact with them. And the other thing about drag racing is there are multi-generations that race. It, it, you see fathers, sons, daughters getting so, into it. Stonewoods and Cook, right? The famous uh, uh, gas supercharged Willie series. So Doug Cook's son, Mike, was a pretty damn good racer in his own right. Way more well-known for land speed stuff. So Mike's granddaughter is racing. So, so it would be Doug, Mike, his son, his daughter, four generations of, of that family. And that's not unusual in drag racing because I think drag racing is so much more accessible than a lot of other motorsports. You literally can drive your daily driver out to your local track on the weekend, put some shoe polish on the window and go out there and run the thing. It's not like you've got to have a special suspension and fit a specific class to do this. Bracket racing, open drag racing up to everybody. And especially if you're a SoCal person, if you talk to somebody uh, my age or older, they either drag raced at one point or a good friend of theirs did. Everybody had spent days at the drag strip in their, in their growing up time. You talked about a lot of guys that you've been looking into from the past of the NHRA. Is there a name that maybe we haven't heard from or NHRA fans know the big names, but is there a smaller name that is kind of legendary in their neighborhood, so to speak, that maybe a lot of other people haven't heard about that made it big? Yeah, I, 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 there's there's literally hundreds. So, so you take somebody, that, this guy's in the Drag Race Hall of Fame, but take Jack Chrisman. Uh, mm -hmm. his son Steve runs his own driveline component business and loaned me some trophies his dad earned Santa Ana Airport drags that was 50 to 59 so you, you know that's an old trophy one from a Lions drag strip from 58 
And what's happened is I, I knew Jack was good. I, you don't make the Hall of Fame by not being great. But as I started cataloging and reading through all these issues, I didn't know that the, the guy was just amazing. Uh, Tommy Ivo and I emailed back and forth. Now, Tommy Ivo is an all-star on anybody's book. That's not an unknown name. Right. But because of his memory and the, he took so many photos of everything, he can clarify so many events for me. Okay, I'm standing on the starting line at Indy during the rain delay talking to Richard Hartman, Tim Gross's uh, car chief, uh, Brad Hardy, the NHRA starter, and Jerry Foss, an NHRA photographer. And, and Jerry Foss says, hey, friend of a friend, uh, somebody knew somebody, the guy's name's Dawson Hadley. I said, yeah, I've read about that name. And here's a guy that went back to lakes racing and early, early drag racing, like when Pomona opened up in 52. And so I just went to my sources Brett Kepner sends me a ton of newspaper clippings on this guy. Well, guess what? There was no TV back in 55. Dawson Hadley didn't become a household name. The guy got huge into the audio industry and made a name for himself there, but he's a backstory to a backstory. But that guy meant something to our sport. And the fact that there's still the ability to research him, find photos, find written reports of him, that means you kind of live forever. And that's a pretty cool thing. Well, you're talking about Bones Bailo. That's another guy that, you know, he got out of the gasser wars years ago. But to someone who's into drag racing, you know that name. You know the person, although it's not a household name. Yeah, it, right. If, if, you're, if you're really hardcore, you know that name. If you're a big drag racing fan after 1980, you wouldn't have heard of Bones. So, so Robert was, hey, this deal about getting sent a paycheck to not work on the car is a pretty recent development in drag racing. And in fact, you take a guy like Tim Wilkerson, he owns the car, he tunes the car, he drives the car. Uh, I wish I could do all that stuff, but as soon as I pick up a wrench, the crew takes it away from me and sends me out with a Sharpie to the, to the ropes <laughs> to sign. So you, you look at where our sport came from and th these people all worked a regular job, drag raced on the weekends, and when their career was over, and it usually ended because they started a family, they went back to a regular job. Well, so you might not know who they were if it weren't for the Drag Race Hall of Fame, the California Hot Rod Reunions, Steve Gibbs doing all these Nitro revi revivals, where we highlight the careers of these people that might have lasted five years, it might have lasted 15 years. But at some point, they had to go back to plumbing or house painting or whatever paid for their mortgage and their family there. And guess what? Here I am at 54 facing that very real possibility. And man, I thought if it came to this point, I'd be depressed and feeling sorry for myself. And I'm going to bust my butt to try to find sponsorship to be able to stay out there. Whether that means I'm back out in 2021 or I'm taking a year off, I don't know. But I love the sport. It's obvious it takes money to do this right. And let me tell you, once you've driven for a team owner like Don Schumacher and you see that success, Wow, is that addictive. I'd imagine. Bob, I think we're going to uh, have to use Jack as one of our uh, sales mentors, I think, mm -hmm. uh, to, get adver you know, to get advertisers, to get decals for the side of his car. I think that's going to be uh, – I, I think it's going to be certainly difficult for any sponsor to say no to you, frankly, the way you've been doing and the way you've been winning. So we, we hope the best for you coming up. By the way, where, again, could people see your – running history of uh, the NHRA? 
So Dodge Garage, that's easy to find. If you can't spell Dodge or Garage, Google it. It'll fill it in for you. <laughs> You'll get uh, close. <laughs> NHRA.com. And if you go on there, don't waste 20 minutes trying to find it. There's a little search icon. Type in Jack Beckman history. Bam, it pops up. And then it also cycles on my Facebook. So what we try to do is every third episode goes on each platform and we just go round and round. And uh, you're talking about sponsorship. If I was a great salesman, I'd have $10 million lined up. They'd be fighting over me right now. But, you know, the, the thing about drag racing, it's completely unique. I was absolutely hooked on drag racing long before I got a paycheck to be involved in drag racing. And I still believe in the sport as strongly today as I did then. I always wondered if once it started to become my job, would I be jaded and not appreciated as much? And in a lot of ways, I appreciate it more. Yeah, the travel's a pain in the butt. Being away from my family sucks. But it's afforded me the ability to interact with so many people who I've looked up to since I was a kid. And, uh, and, and frankly, if you're going to get a paycheck to do something and you can do that for something you love, there's nothing that beats that. He's right. Definitely. Definitely. Jack, it's been great having you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. By the way, uh, we will be watching you as you uh, hang on to that number one ranking and uh, finishing up over the next five races in the NHRA, and, and uh, we will be watching. By the way, don't forget, listen to our uh, audio podcast. You can get them on radio.com and knx1070.com. Don't forget to also watch our video. You may be watching the video right now. If you're listening, you'll be watching this video in about two weeks. Uh, the podcast on our new Two Tired Guys Productions channel. Don't forget, subscribe to both and follow us on social media and become a Two Tired Guys patron. You can see exclusive videos and get uh, some swag as well. By the way, we're going to be asking Jack a patron question, patreon.com question that uh, we'll be putting in there. It'll be exclusively just for our patrons. That's coming up right after we wrap this up. Bob, uh, you have anything uh, last to throw in there? Last question, Jack. A lot of the drivers have put their children and grandchildren in junior dragsters. Are any of your uh, youngsters looking forward to that? Jason's 13, Layla's nine. She's a little tougher than he is. They both play ice hockey, which is ridiculously expensive. <laughs> Don't recommend it. And uh, so good friend of mine, Gary Southern, who was a pretty badass race car driver for five years has been trying to get me to go up to Victorville and run the eighth mile dirt oval go-kart track with him. I never had time. Okay. Well, so I took Jason up there earlier this year and he loved it. So uh, Gary's son, Chris, has a nice cart, and we put Jason in the junior dirt go-kart class, which is a spec engine, six and a half horse, and he just got his first podium finish last race. Wow. Now, I don't know that either one of my kids want to go junior drag racing, and, and frankly, here's the deal. I am not going to invest the time and the money to do it, to have them go, eh, it's not really what I wanted to do. I would be delighted to take them out and put them in somebody else's car as a rental and kind of put their toe in the water and see if they enjoy it. Right now, they got plenty of hobbies, though. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Hey, All right. You guys, before I forget, infinitehero.org. I forgot if the fans yes. can't come to a race and you guys want to go get a coin, just go to infinitehero.org, and it's pretty easy to follow the prompts and just tell me what race you want it from, and I can personalize it to you. All right. That's Bob. I'm Randy. That's Fast Jack Beckman. And uh, he's going to be number one at the end of the year. I get this feeling. I don't know, either that or it's here it's my Lebago acting up. I don't really know. But until then, we've all been talking about cars. We'll see you next time. <laughs>